Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Fairy tales are mysterious. They seem on one level to be a straightforward, entertaining story, but then when you listen again, there was a symbol there that you didn't see before or a curious detail that makes you think twice. That's the way it should be, because fairy tales teach us about life. They teach us to look at life in a fresh way, because life is, itself, never quite what it seems. As in the stories, there are deeper levels of meaning and significance, but we need eyes to see them. Fairy tales help us develop the eyes we need to see things in a new way. One of the ways they make us look at life in a new way is by having two parallel worlds. Often, one world is beautiful and perfect, while the parallel world is threatening, dark, and evil. The beautiful world puts the evil world in contrast, and the heroes want to get away from the dark world back to the beautiful world. The scriptures tell the same story with the Garden of Eden, a paradise that we long to return to. When he was a boy, Father Longenecker was entranced by a science fiction story called The Forgotten Door by Alexander Key. In the story, a boy from another world falls through a forgotten door into our world. He has special powers and helps his adoptive family in this world get out of trouble before the door opens again, allowing him to go home to his world. Alexander Key's Forgotten Door is a great classic which is still in print. It was one of the inspirations for Father Longenecker's story of the same name. In The Forgotten Door, you'll find something to laugh at, something to think through, and maybe some connections you didn't expect. Here's Father Longenecker reading his story, The Forgotten Door. Once upon a time, there was a terrible and wonderful giant called Hava. Hava lived in a rich and beautiful land which was like a garden everywhere. It wasn't like one of those formal gardens you'd find at a fancy mansion for rich people. And it wasn't like a jungle either. It was kind of like the two of them combined. That's because all the plants could talk, and they discussed together the best places for them to grow. The trees had no fear of being cut down, so they didn't feel they had to be silent and somber all the time. In Hava's land, no one would think of cutting a tree down, so the trees sang together every day in lovely, thin, tree-like voices, if they were young and green, or in deep, silvery voices, if they were old and gray. It was the nicest when they grew in groves and sang together like a choir. Sometimes all the birds would fly in and join them, and they would all sing together, and the music they made was so grand and wonderful— but it wasn't what we think of as grand and wonderful music, all trumpets and drums and the noisy hallelujah chorus. Instead, it was like music that was somehow solemn and playful at the same time. It was like people playing flutes and tubas and dancing and saxophones and sousaphones and tintabulations and tambourines and flugel horns. The talking trees in Havisland were especially nice because they liked to talk to children. The fruit trees would say, You there, why not have a peach? Or, Good morning, my pears are ripe and ready to eat and they're ever so juicy. 
The great old trees had high, secret places where you could climb up and sit and think and watch the world with no one watching you. If you wanted to climb those old trees, you'd find that the tree himself would help you a little with a boost here and moving a branch into just the right place there. And the willows by the river had vines hanging down. So you could climb the tree and then swing down on the vine and drop into the river for a delicious swim. The animals in Hava's land were surprising, too. They were all the animals we have, and many more besides. There were some who were like deer and horses combined, who could run as fast and as sleek as the wind in winter. There were strange, funny animals, too, like the one which was a chicken and a porcupine combined. It was called a chickypine, and it would squeak when it threw its feathers at you. The lion, who I must stress was not a tame lion was nevertheless very friendly, and just when you thought he was going to let out a terrible and fierce roar, he would roar with laughter instead. In fact, in Hava's land, people would say that you laughed with roaring instead of roared with laughter. Well, I could go on and on about Hava's land, but I must get on with the story. You may have guessed that Hava was the king of Hava's land, although he was really less like a king and more like a grandfather, a big brother, and a favorite uncle all thrown together. He had a huge black beard which flowed down over his great chest and belly. On his bald head he wore a soft yellow hat with lots of points, which sometimes looked like a crown, but more often looked like a jester's hat. And when Hava walked through the land, all the creatures would bow low before him, and then they would jump up on him like your dog does when you come home. Some days Hava would sit under his favorite old oak tree, and he would turn his face away and not speak to anyone. His head would hang down, and all the singing would stop. And when that happened, everyone knew that Hava was thinking about the land beyond the wall. You see, ages and ages ago, Hava had to build a wall around the garden land. Some of the children from Hava's land had decided to live somewhere else. They had got angry and run away from home. So to protect the rest of the creatures in his land, Hava had to build a wall, and when he sat with his head bowed, the sun would go behind a cloud, and the trees and animals would look sad and take a quiet nap. They knew Hava was not only thinking about the wall, but he was missing all his children who lived beyond the wall. The land outside the wall was like a terrible desert. It wasn't a hot, dry desert like the Sahara, and it wasn't a cold and icy desert like Siberia. It was a dull, gray desert where the sun never really shone brightly, and it rained nearly every day. In the days it didn't rain, it looked like it was going to. The children who lived there had built a big town called Burnt Ochre, with lots of traffic and trains and ran underground, and railway stations and factories with smokestacks and loud machinery. There were restaurants where you could get greasy food served to you in minutes that you had to eat out of paper wrappers as you walked along. They told you that was a good thing because it saved time. The people were always saving time, and then wondering what to do because they were bored. The people of that desert land kept trying to convince themselves that they really liked living there, and that they were having a wonderful time. They behaved like grown-ups at one of those parties they all go to, even though they don't want to, where they have to smile at people they don't like and who don't really like them either. They tried to forget Hava's land by moving further and further away from Hava's land, and soon the town of Burt Ochre had grown into a huge city that was far from the wall. And the city fathers, as they were called, 
built big apartment blocks so that no one could see the wall. Eventually, a forest of thorns and brambles, nettles and poison ivy grew up over the land and over the wall, and it was totally forgotten. The people told folk tales about the wall and Hava and Hava's land, and eventually the clever people in the universities started to write learned books about the folk stories. They said, for instance, that Ahava was certainly terrible and not kind and good, as the old stories said. Otherwise, why would he have built the wall to keep the children there as slaves? Others came along and said that Hava probably never really existed at all, and that he was a projection of the collective unconscious. They said Hava's land was the product of primitive myth-making in which their ancestors, facing the great threat of death, devised a happy place they could all go to one day. And they said the wall was a symbol of the threshold of death and the final crossing into nothingness. And they said many such things, but it was all an attempt to block out Hava and forget Hava's land. But most of all, they blocked up the door. You see... When Hava had built the wall, he also built a door in the wall. But as long as anybody could remember, the doorway had been blocked off with bricks on the outside. Over the years, the ivy, thistle, thorns, and brambles had covered the door completely. And then one day, some builders were clearing the land at the bottom of a hill near the wall to build a new factory that was going to make steam puddings. As the big yellow machine with a claw rumbled and turned its way toward the wall, it kept pulling up the thistles and brambles, and finally they pulled away some ivy, and there it was. A portion of the wall that went up the hill was exposed, and in the section on the top of the hill they could see what seemed to be the top of a pointed arched doorway. But the doorway was bricked up. And one of the men, whose name was Norman Barnacle, shouted for the big yellow machine to stop. He pulled the last bit of poison ivy away, and sure enough, clear as could be, there was a doorway in the wall. The men ran back to the city and told the mayor what they'd found. The mayor's name was the Honorable Percival Drudge. Could it be the famous forgotten door, they asked? Was it possible that there was such a place as Hava's land after all? Before long, a great crowd of people had gathered and a stream of big black vans with flashing blue lights pulled up. The police erected a barricade, and some workmen brought hammers and picks, and they began to take away the bricks, and at last they found the door itself. It was a wooden door, dark red, the color of burgundy wine. The door was locked and had no doorknob, and over the door were carved vine leaves and an inscription in an ancient faded script. They peered closely and could just make out the words, it said, children only, no adults allowed. Out of the big black van stepped some of the experts from the university. The history professor used a machine that beeped and probed and said confidently that the door was of the same age as the wall itself. The expert in religion said it was impossible that this wall could be the wall of the old stories since his research had proven that the stories were no more than pious myths invented by people long ago. The door, he said, as he removed his glasses, must have been put there by unknown persons in order to perpetrate a fraud. Mr. Barnacle leaned over to his wife Janice and asked what perpetrate a frog might mean, but she told him to shush. All the other experts consulted together to come up with a theory, and then some of the biggest men and boys tried to push the door open. They heaved and hoed and puffed and panted, but it wouldn't budge. Finally, they all shrugged their aching shoulders and went home.
But the next morning, the crowds were even bigger. Word had gotten around the town, and everyone wanted to see the forgotten door. Mayor Drudge had spoken to the schoolmaster, Mr. Farnsworth, and said, "'If only children can get in through that door, I reckon we ought to at least give it a try. Why not gather the very best children together and see what happens?' Mr. Farnsworth pulled on his left ear and looked over his glasses and said, oh, "'Well, I, I suppose it's worth a try.' Mr. Farnsworth selected the most intelligent boy, the most religious girl, the richest boy, and the strongest boy. They arrived in a yellow school bus with a crowd of other school children and their families, and they all jostled for places opposite the mysterious door and wondered what would happen. First, the strongest boy stepped up. He had a red face, a chunky chest, and legs like logs. His name was Bert Chankel, and he kept wiping his nose with the sleeve of his jacket. He ran up to the door and heaved and struggled and threw his bulky bulk at it like a warthog trying to escape from a pen. He pushed and heaved and grunted and wheezed until he finally fell with a plop on his bottom in the mud. Everyone laughed, and Bert got up with a frown and marched off to find someone to bully so he would feel better. Next, the most intelligent boy stepped up. His name was Horace Greenpole, and he had been to all the best schools. He wore thick spectacles and had teeth that were crooked in the front. He was thin and wore sensible shoes with the socks falling down. Horace carried a huge ancient book under his arm, and looking down his nose at Bert Chankel, sniffed, "'Force is the final tool of the incompetent.' He announced, I have studied the ancient tales about Haber's land, and I know some magic incantations that should open the door. One of them is, speak a friend and enter. We'll try that one first. Well, it didn't work, and when he looked carefully for a hidden latch, a spring-loaded handle to pull, or a secret button to press, he found nothing. Nothing worked. Horace stepped away with a puzzled look, saying, I must do a bit more research. This is proving to be more problematic than I first anticipated. The most religious girl was next. Her name was Esmeralda Pigeon, and she spoke with a horrible high voice and wore shoes that were too tight. She said, I have prayed about this all night, and I've come to see that this is a religious issue. If only we say the right prayers in the right way, I believe the door will open. One doesn't want to boast, but I can honestly say that I have never missed going to Sunday service, and I sincerely enjoy divine worship. She said divine worship in a hushed tone, as if it were a special secret. Esmeralda went to the door and took out her prayer book, and said a special prayer, and then stayed there on her knees for a long time, and thought beautiful thoughts, and contemplated the unity of the universe. Of course, she was really thinking all the time about the people watching her and how they would praise her for being so holy, and, well, of course, the door didn't budge. The richest boy stepped up next. His name was Ronald J. Strunk, and as he stepped to the door, he announced, My people, I believe this door will be opened if we use the simple formula my family has always used, which is, Believe to give, give to believe. I am going to start a charity, which you can all donate to, in order to research this wonderful door, and how we can access it in order to learn more about the ancient mysteries and advance our quality of living. 
I believe behind this door is a land of untold riches, prosperity for all, more jobs, more wealth, more for everyone. The crowd cheered, but the door didn't budge. Everyone was wondering what to do next when a skinny little boy stepped forward. He was barefoot. He had a peaky nose, long, messy hair, and he was dressed in ragged pants and a filthy shirt that came down to his ankles. He pushed through the crowd and stood before Sam O'Hara, the policeman. "'Please, sir, can I have a try?' Everyone laughed, and someone called out, "'Yeah, let Rags have a turn. Go, <laughs> Go on, Rags, yeah. Let Rags try it. He's skinny enough to slide under the door himself.' The boy looked at the policeman and waited for an answer. The crowd craned their necks to look. "'Who is it?' someone asked. "'It's the orphan boy who cleans the stables. Where did he come from? Nobody knows. He just turned up one night sleeping in the stable, and Farmer Maggot gave him a job.' Soon the people were angry. "'Who does he think he is?' called out Birch Ankle. "'I don't understand,' cried Esmeralda Pigeon. "'He's filthy, and he smells bad.' Horace Greenpole smirked. The poor ignoramus hasn't got a clue. It's far more complicated than he thinks. Trust me on that. Ronald Strunk left. He'll never win friends and influence people dressed like that. Or smelling like that, shrieked Esmeralda. The crowd roared with laughter. Then they started to become angry. Yes, who does he think he is, they called out. If our children couldn't get in, why does he think he can? Does he think he's better than everybody else? Take him back to the stable. Get rid of him, someone yelled. He stinks, someone else cried out. As the boy stood and waited, the crowd surged forward. Get him, Sam, they said to the policeman. And just then, as the worried policeman reached for him, the boy calmly turned and walked up the hill toward the door. At the door, he stopped and read slowly and loudly the saying over the door, Children only, no adults allowed. And then a very strange thing happened. The poor, ragged stable boy turned to face the people and stood in the doorway, and it was a perfect fit. He put his back to the door, his hands on the doorposts, and his head just touched the lintel on top. And then the people rubbed their eyes, because... The boy seemed to change into the door, or the door changed into him. They weren't quite sure. And then he said in a clear, strong voice, a voice that trembled with age and emotion and youth, I am the child, as it was in the beginning. But now he seemed to be growing, and his voice was deeper and stronger, and all the people began to be frightened. Some of them ran away to the city, and others fell on their faces, because there was a terrible crack of thunder. The earth shook, and a great crash of lightning seared across the sky. Suddenly the stable boy was radiant. His ragged clothes turned white, whiter than any cleaner on earth could make them, and he seemed beautiful and strong. His hair was golden and flowing in the wind as he cried, "'Is now and ever shall be!' And then he seemed to them to be huge, huge, as huge as the giant Hava himself. Then, just as suddenly, he was gone. He vanished, and the people lifted their heads, and they could see Hava's land through the door. A fresh breeze was blowing, and they all smelled the fragrance of spring. And if they listened very carefully, they could hear the voices of the trees singing in the distance. And from then on, everyone from the desert city of Burnt Ochre was able to go on a great adventure to Hava's land if they wanted to. All they needed to do was to discover the secret of becoming as small and as poor 
as the stable boy. Did you enjoy The Forgotten Door? Why not listen again and see if you can pick up some more details to discuss? If you enjoy true fairy tales, why not recommend them to others? Remember, these true fairy tales are podcasted free of charge, but they are not free to produce and distribute. While each series is being produced, it will be posted on Father Longenecker's blog, early for donor subscribers, and once the series has been completed, the podcasts will be archived at Father Longenecker's blog website for donor subscribers to listen to and download as they like. If you're not a regular reader of Father Longenecker's blog, Standing on My Head, why not bookmark it and check it out for daily blog posts and links to great reading material? If you would like to make a donation to help with the expenses of these stories, you can use the donate button in the right sidebar of the website. To learn how you can be a donor subscriber, click the subscribe tab at the top of the homepage. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.